Hello and welcome back to We Are The University, the podcast about the people who make Cambridge University unique. I'm your host, Jenny Hayward. In this episode, we talk to Tyler Shores about digital fatigue and distraction and how we can all take care of our digital well-being. We also talk about his experience of setting up an entirely online high school and how we can think about online learning in a much more holistic way. I find, I don't know if you find this, I get sort of, um, if I have a day with loads of virtual meetings, like you just get kind of sick of being on camera all the time. Yeah, I haven't met a single person that doesn't think Zoom fatigue is a real thing. Yeah. Um, So it's a time at the moment when a lot of schools and teachers have been sort of figuring out how they can run things virtually. But um, you actually helped to set up an entirely online high school at Stanford. What was involved in in all of that? Yeah, so this was the uh, the Stanford Online High School. And I... uh, Funnily enough, I originally uh, was planning to be an English teacher there mm-hmm. because uh, teaching and all of that is uh, what I was most drawn to and I'm still drawn to. But with my background in uh, technology and having worked at uh, Google and a few other um, ed tech kind of stops along the way, they mm-hmm. wanted me to help run the uh, kind of like online content and communication sort of stuff. And uh, really, like we're talking about the, the reality that we're all living now when it comes to, um, you know, schooling and living and working on screens, but this was six, uh, five or six years ago. So, yeah, wow. um, it is kind of funny. And like, you know, just the, the idea behind it was to be able to like, it was a, a full, fully run online high school as mm-hmm. in like all of the classrooms and all of the pedagogical stuff happened, um, on screen. Like we physically had an office where staff were on the, on the Stanford campus and yeah. everything. But, um, yeah, this is, it, it, it's, uh, it was a kind of a glimpse into our, our current, uh, present situation yeah. and that it was students from all over which you know it really leveraged the power of kind of online stuff that's the cool part I think of this is that you know it kind of uh, has the potential to you know kind of reach across geographical boundaries and like yeah. well learning can happen in one virtual place from all sorts of uh, physical places around the world and uh, we're talking about like very you know very bright students, very like high level uh, you know university level curriculum mm-hmm. sort of stuff that they were able to do. But it was a good first hand glimpse into kind of uh, uh, what's happening now, and uh, I can't help but wonder the students who uh, went through the Stanford online thing is like oh they're probably very well prepared for yeah. uh, life in twenty twenty. They must be yeah. They've been through all this before. Did you find that there were any? Um, I guess, particular issues that you came across with running that kind of high school where everything's virtual? Um, yeah, I mean, one of the surprises for me, certainly, um, was that, uh, you know, I guess the funny part was uh, with uh, ebooks and everything, that mm-hmm. was one of the pluses for an online school is that we could kind of customize and have their all of their books they needed, whether through the Apple iBooks platform or, uh, you know, Google Play or mm. Kindle or whatever. And we had everything all set up like that. And interestingly enough, when uh, especially when it came to English classes and anything that was more uh, in-depth sort of reading, they preferred the print book. It was oh, like, really? oh, we made this uh, ebook store for you. But uh, that was also an interesting kind of uh, indication. Now, this is what my research is in, in terms mm-hmm. of uh, print and uh, digital books and reading and screens and all of this oh, and okay. just thinking in terms of just like oh yeah are are we having digital fatigue nowadays like do we kind of want the return to print to mm. uh, you know kind of come back to all of this and give our eyeballs and our brains a work on everything <laughs> and it, it, it kind of feels like it mm, for sure definitely um so how how did you get involved in in that project at Stanford because your I think your first teaching gig was quite unusual 
It was, yeah. Uh, I taught it uh, for uh, uh, any uh, U.S. listeners. I taught at the uh, the, the Rivals School at first at Berkeley. <laughs> Uh, this was in California, and then uh, after a few things in between, I did end up going to Stanford, and it kind of married some of the um, uh, the things that I was really interested in, in terms of just sort of like education and technology, and having worked a few years at Google, and like, you know, really kind of seeing the crossover between some of these things, and uh, working in like digital textbooks as well in the mm-hmm. education sphere, so... Uh, Stanford made a lot of sense for uh, uh, that reason because they were like a lot of interesting ideas. Uh, Coursera, uh, I think that was right. One of the big MOOCs uh, came out of Stanford too. So they were, you know, uh, in terms of online courses and the really big ones, uh, pretty cutting edge and still cutting edge. So that was sort of the appeal. And for people that have ever been to the Stanford campus, it's like, it is true. It's it's like a a country resort sort of thing with, with, you know, professors and students in it but yeah it's quite nice I sort of miss it right now yeah, <laughs> yeah I bet yeah so your um, but your yeah. first sort of your first teaching experience at Berkeley this um philosophy and the Simpsons class that you yes. running. And, and the class was officially called the Simpsons and philosophy uh-huh. so the idea behind it was that it was an undergraduate course mm-hmm. and uh, it was it was a philosophy course uh, you know like the kind of thing that you know undergrad students would take an introductory course covering like Socrates and Plato and yeah. all the way through uh, Kant and Hegel, Nietzsche and Marx and all this stuff. And we did it through uh, Simpsons episodes and wow. um, like as in be like, all right, so uh, uh, this week we're going to talk about Marxism and just sort of like the basics in a 90 minute lecture, and we'll do it through watching an episode of The Simpsons too, where the power plant goes on strike <laughs> and you can kind of see how the you know, the overthrow of the bourgeoisie works and all of this. So that was the idea to really Mm -hmm. like, um, I guess in a larger sense to make it more relevant for people that normally wouldn't um, uh, kind of access philosophy. And it's a very non-traditional thing. You got to remember this was back in, uh, 2003. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh man, that was a long time ago. This is <laughs> really before like the pop culture in the college classrooms is really a thing. Mm-hmm. So um, it certainly made the news at the time, and it's it's not the kind of like traditional academic thing that yeah. uh, would normally think about. But yeah, definitely got a few. You know, sort of like they're doing what in Berkeley, and they're <laughs> teaching this, and uh, higher education dollars going towards cartoons. And I was like, well, no, not exactly. You still mm-hmm. have to do the homework and actual primary reading but I wanted to do it in a way that would catch a lot of eyeballs and connect it to you know like uh, things that would actually really mean something to people so that was the idea Mm -hmm. that's really cool (laughs) it was a lot of fun I bet it was yeah yeah and it sounds like you had an incredible turnout yeah, the um, so that was the first time I'd ever really taught a class mm-hmm. um, when I was expecting about, you know, 20, 25 people, which seemed like a reasonable amount for a first timer and um, having about 600 students show wow. up and needing to scramble to get the largest uh, lecture hall we could find was um, quite an experience. Yeah, um, I can fully admit now, even on a, on a podcast that I thought about quitting right there. And then, <laughs> I was like, nope, nobody knows what I look like. Goodbye. <laughs> But uh, it actually ended up being a good way to kind of dive into the deep end and also like, you know, weirdly gratifying, even though it's terrifying when your first gig ends up in this, um, like facing this swarm of humanity. But wow, this is talking about right place at the right time. This yeah. really struck a chord in terms of like, yeah, it was a it was a fun idea that got people's eyeballs, but it really showed how much people were interested in yeah. doing this. And, you know, over the years, knowing I was, I was partly gratified, uh, I think uh, at least a couple of people from the 
the STEM and the uh, at least one engineering student I remember converted to uh, philosophy. Oh, really? Because wow. of the class. So I was like, yeah. So like, you know, for better or for worse, I think for better. Yeah. That uh, ended up uh, having kind of an impact on a lot of students. Yeah, huge impact. That's amazing. Yeah. So it sounds like you had a really, um, a very interesting and very varied career in the States. So what was it that brought you to Cambridge? Uh, a number of factors, I guess. I mean, for the first part, I thought I was done with academia. Mm. Um, uh, I, uh, I did do my master's degree at a university that's similar to Cambridge, but not Cambridge. <laughs> um, and I thought after that experience that I was like, okay, I'm, I'm satisfied with this. I've got the taste of the graduate level education, but, mm-hmm. uh, it turned out I had an itch still when it yeah. came to kind of like this education and technology things. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I don't know who else is listening to this, but like, you know, the going for the graduate degree or the PhD, just because you don't know what else to do is a terrible life choice. <laughs> but if, if you have like a reason in terms of like, yeah, like it's there, I really want to know this and I really want to like, you know, get in depth and knowledge, then mm-hmm. uh, th- th- that's probably a, a good sign. And mm-hmm. I kind of had that and I was looking at all these different things, but Cambridge had the right vibe. I know yeah. that's kind of a, a squishy way to uh, describe things in terms of like, yeah, I didn't want somewhere to... Um, uh, uh, like too traditional in terms mm-hmm. of, you know, it's like, you know, for, for the stuff that I was doing, it's like I'm interested in reading digital technology and all of this stuff. I wasn't uh, necessarily looking at, uh, say, an English department that focused on um, uh, Virginia Woolf and Jane Austen kind of studies mm-hmm. or whatever, but I wanted something that like, and I ended up in the Faculty of Education oh, right, uh, okay. here at Cambridge. So uh, something that could really touch on uh, like what's happening uh, and having been a former teacher too and spending a lot of time in the classroom mm. being able to do research that hopefully would like you know like reach those people not just the theoretical uh, student or teacher or whatever but I was like but I really want to know about like real real students and real teachers and what they're actually doing so that's been kind of like the motivation for uh, some of the things I've been doing since I'm uh, since I've been at Cambridge. Yeah and what is it that particularly motivates or inspires you about your your work and your research? Um, I would say that um, uh, because I've had kind of different careers uh, along the way that um, I've noticed and uh, as, as a quick uh, uh, digression, like at Google, when I worked in the, uh, the main headquarters in Mountain View, we had this series called Talks to Google that we did. Um, authors at Google at the time, and we would bring in speakers from all over. Um, so rather than having the, the bookstore uh, event author talk where mm. 10, 20, 50 people show up, well, we recorded on YouTube for free for everyone yeah. to see with internet um, yeah. that we're reaching, you know, all of a sudden a thousand or in some cases um, half a million users wow. who get to see this experience. Yeah. So um, that really kind of stuck with me and has mm-hmm. been sort of motivating me at Cambridge in terms of like, yeah, research is good, um, but research never happens in a vacuum. So mm-hmm. like, I love things like the Cambridge Science Festival, the Festival of Ideas, which I've participated in, but you know, that is kind of, I mean, at least for me, I feel like it's part of my job to, you know, kind of like share all these things and uh, get to talk about research and um, getting all kinds of questions from the public to be able to say like, you know, it's like, oh, well, these are the questions that they're thinking about right now. Mm. And uh, it's hard sometimes, like it is an actual skill that I feel like needs to be developed to to be able to, you know, as researchers and academics to kind of be able to also talk about um, your work in terms of real human beings, like, you know, how people outside of our our, our, our bubble um, you know think of things sometimes so mm-hmm. um, that's a big part of it for me yeah. and uh, specifically now in the uh, 
Um, in my new role at the university, I'm running the Think Lab program. Mm-hmm. Um, we're part of the Strategic Partnerships Office, and that is kind of what we're doing. We're trying to connect research with the real world impact and all of these things. Yeah. And um, I think it's cool. Like, you know, at especially at a time like this, when uh, maybe a lot of questions are being asked, what's the future of higher education or why yeah. higher education in the first place? Mm-hmm. Like, this is at least like, you know, a partial answer in terms of like, we do research that like really connects. It's sort of like, this is stuff that like, you know, it's where academia and research kind of connects with um, all the other things that people are doing out there. So, um, yeah, when I mentioned like the kind of Cambridge bubble and everything, and I was like, mm-hmm. sure, it's a bubble, but it doesn't mean it has to be like 100% impermeable. It's kind of like, yeah, we, you know, our stuff is real world stuff too. So that's a long winded way of saying, I was like, these are the kind of things that like really uh, motivate me and kind of keep me excited right now. Cool. And so if you're, when you're doing your sort of talks and presentations and things with interacting with members of the public, how do you explain the research project that you're working on? Um, let's see. So, yeah, I mean, uh, right now, um, I, the most recent example I can think of is I went to the, um, the spoke at the Hay Festival last mm-hmm. summer, which was great. Um, it's sort of like a, a book lover's uh, paradise. Yeah. Actually, it really is. Mm-hmm. And I gave a talk on um, digital, like, you know, does uh, how much does the media matter? The, you know, mm-hmm. like whether we read in print or um, on screen or something. Oh, okay. There's been a lot of debate about this. And uh, I kind of just talked about is it good, bad, is it neither? and all of these things, and just sort of being able to kind of communicate, um, actually tangibly making it to them. And like kind of, it's hard to do in a big audience, but getting people to really relate in the senses, like, well, how many of you read print books right now? Like, you know, tell me about it. Like, you know, what is it about the feel of a book cover or like, you know, the turning of the pages that feels different and all of that. So um, being able to kind of like, you know, it's fun. It's fun to kind of like get people and sometimes they ask you questions that really throws you. Mm. Um, it's like, oh, I've never quite thought about that before. Yeah. Um, and I don't know, like my my sense of shame has gone down over the years. So it's like, I don't have a problem saying I don't know to a group of 200 people. Yeah. And being like, you know, but let me, let me think about that a little mm. bit. So I don't know if this counts as good advice or not, but like when I'm doing these sort of things, I kind of um, uh, want to think of myself. If I was in their seats, what would I want to get out of this talk? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, there's a lot of very, um, uh, a lot of talks all over the place. And uh, sometimes it's, it tends to be very high level and abstract, but I also like to make it very tangible and uh, concrete sometimes. So like maybe I'll give them a little thought experiment to be yeah. like, all right, so the next time you read on a screen or the next time you, you know, do one of these things, like just kind of like, you know, check in with yourself and like these little habit things. Or, like mm-hmm. do you find yourself holding your breath when you uh, check your email or oh, check in your notifications. Yeah, there's a uh, in Microsoft, I think it was, they yeah. created the term uh, email apnea. So yeah. even like subconsciously, you're kind of holding your breath when you, uh, oh, wow. uh, 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 you know, like are checking these sort of things. Yeah. But um, it's kind of, to me, the fascinating part is like there's so much of everyday life that's kind of, we are on autopilot or becomes mm. such routine stuff that yeah. we don't often think about it. So like, you know, during those lectures and those events, it's kind of like a, you know, 60 minute time where we get to kind of, you know, hit the pause button and really think in terms of like, why do we do things the way we do now? Like the topic I'm most mm. interested in, in terms of uh, digital well-being um, for like, you know, students, researchers and all over just thinking 
uh, now when all of our stuff is coming through screens, um, uh, the kind of habits that we fall into now, it's like, why do we check uh, news headlines first thing in the morning, which most people do just anecdotally. How does that make us feel? Usually bad. Mm. And then it's like, are there ways that we can kind of like, you know, like alter maybe our, our news information consumption and these sort of things. So those, that's the kind of stuff I really like um, talking to like yeah. people about and just asking because I'm curious. And yeah. I'm, I actually want to know. I was like, why do, why do we do that? Why do I do that? Yeah. You mentioned digital well-being. Um, so what, yeah. what is digital well-being and what, what is it about it that interests you? Um, I guess, uh, ooh, what is it? Um, I mean, it could be a, a number of things, but the, uh, like I see it as a natural kind of extension of the stuff I've been working on in terms of research and our screen habits and all of that. And, yeah. you know, it just became so relevant now. And, yeah. um, it's sort of funny. The debates, uh, say like, uh, uh, three or four months ago were too much screen time and all of these things. And mm. then here we are in uh, June, 2020. And I was like, well, uh, let's think about this a little differently now. So maybe it's the question of quality instead of quantity for screen time. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, none of us really, really know. There's, there's a lot of knowledgeable people that can give um, information on, uh, like, you know, it's like, oh, we know certain things are probably good in terms of, uh, like, maybe cutting down the screen time closer to bedtime mm -hmm. and, you know, maybe don't read uh, headlines about Brexit or Trump, like right before bedtime, yes. and, uh, all of this. Um, but just sort of thinking in terms of like, you know, we're always, uh, you know, on our devices now, now yeah. more so than ever, our, our multiple devices. So mm. um, what does that mean? And how can we kind of take care of ourselves uh, doing that? I was thinking now, you know, like, I think many of us can relate to uh, Zoom fatigue, which yeah. I also I also mean like video fatigue and all of these things. That yeah. would that would count as digital well-being okay. for me and these sort of things. And just sort of like, yeah, it is tiring. It's tiring to me. Like I'm an introvert. I know that is that I can do uh, kind of like, you know, more uh, uh, external sort of stuff. But I get tired. And yeah. Zoom is sort of the same way because it's sort of like. Um, because we have to rely more on those nonverbal cues, right? Yeah. It's like, does this person look like they're uh, paying attention? Oh, no, it froze for a second. I have to decipher this. That's hard work. Our, yeah. you know, cognitive processes are kind of like going overtime and all of that. And um, I think we're just not used to it yet. It was like, yeah. this is so strange. Um, so, yeah, those sort of things that kind of like taking care of ourselves and sort of like social media it's a tough time on social media right now, especially someone coming from the U.S. Yeah. Uh, I'm talking like, you know, right now. And it's like, yeah, there uh, it's it, it sucks us in. And uh, mm -hmm. we do know that negative emotions like tend to the hotter emotions tend to like, you know, make us keep coming back more and more and engaging. So uh, social media um, was sort of invented for these kind of, you know, moral outrages and like, you know, fearful pandemic things, but not in a good way. Like what yeah. I mean is like we kind of need to set our own boundaries, too, and to be mm -hmm. able to kind of be like, you know, it's like, yeah, I am doing this, but what's good for me? Uh, right now. And um, yeah, that, that's broadly speaking what I'm thinking of in terms of well-being. It's like, how do we make sure that, you know, we're okay with this? And like, you know, are there ways to rethink our habits and like, you know, yeah. do that? And I, I think, yes, I don't have a, you know, a full answer. Nobody really does, but at least we can start thinking about it. Yeah, absolutely. Especially at the moment, because I think it's something that everyone is sort of encountering now in a much bigger way than they have before. So it's very much at the front of our minds. Are there things that you find that help you in terms of switching off or getting less exhausted with all of the sort of digital, being so aware of everything and being switched on all the time? 
I think so, because, I mean, it wasn't that long ago when, remember, the, the news used to be um, broadcast on certain times of the day only, yeah. where it was like, you know, you watched it in the morning and then you watched it in the evening mm. and that was it. And then all of a sudden it was CNN and the 24 hour news cycle and all of that. Um, maybe they had the right idea, like yeah. in terms of like those limitations now. It's like, so I kind of uh, prefer that, like in terms of just, you know, there's so much news right now and we have some of that kind of like evolutionary like fight or flight mm -hmm. instinct in terms of like we have to keep checking in case there's something new about COVID or whatever yeah. but when you start to think about it like you know a lot of days there isn't that much news but they're very good at you know repackaging the same thing to get us to yeah. click on these and click on that so I sort of like be able to check you know at certain times a day I prefer not to check uh, mm -hmm. news or really be online first thing in the morning um, yeah. I'm big on habits and routines right now and this mm -hmm. kind of comes into like especially for you know us if we have like uh, creative or thinking sort of work like those sort of things tend to uh, put us into reactive mode right away is what I've noticed is okay. that it's like yeah. oh there's this email that requires like you know kind of a detailed response and I was like oh I haven't really had my coffee yet but I'm not fully awake enough to actually answer this but mm -hmm. I'll, I'll be stressed out for like 30 minutes while I'm thinking about it and I was like well maybe it's better to give ourselves a little bit of that quiet time and that, um, you know, that, that chance to kind of like transition into the day. The big one for me is kind of, um, and almost all the research that I've done talking to people about mm. their digital habits is, uh, you know, what's the last thing you do at night and the first thing you do in the morning. And for most people, it is kind of like, you know, check their phone or like they have it on their nightstand. It's like, I got to use it as an alarm clock. Yeah. And, you know, all of this and all of that. And it's such a slippery slope. The alarm clock function is like the gateway drug for the rest of the, rest <laughs> of the phone stuff. Yeah. Because it's sort of like, you know, it's like, oop, did I hear a notification? Let me just check that or, mm. you know, check this. And I'm not fully awake, but let me look at the news headlines and see what's new on Twitter and all of that. And it's like, wow, I'm already having a bad day and I've only been awake for, you know, a minute and a half and all of that. <laughs> yeah. So maybe, maybe, maybe we can kind of uh, like, you know, rethink that. So that's my big one for people yeah. listening out there is like consider an alarm clock, get, get like a cheap um, an alarm clock that doesn't have any apps or internet on it or anything and swap your phone for like an alarm clock by the nightstand. So like maybe that'll kind of like give you a little bit of quiet space at night and in the morning. Mm. No, that's so true because you, you do, you go to switch your alarm off and suddenly you've got all these notifications. So you're confronted with it immediately. Yeah. Yes. No, that's a really good idea. Yeah. So your um, research, you're fin finishing up your thesis at the moment. Mm -hmm. So what's your, what's the sort of focus of that? What's your research project been? Um, the specifically on the experience of uh, reading in print and reading on screen. So okay. what, what does that entail in terms of like, and I'm looking at longer text too, which mm -hmm. hasn't really been a thing. Yeah. Um, it was like, you know, what is it like to read, say like a whole novel and kind of keeping track of, you know, what is that? And looking at sort of trying really hard to look at like, you know, you never just read in a vacuum. It's sort of like other things are going on mm. and trying to keep it as naturalistic as possible, too, in terms of like, all right, so if I'm reading on my iPad or something like that and I get a notification, like what happens during that time? Does it pull us out of, say, like the story or something like that? And mm. there's a lot of what I call reading adjacent behaviors that I, I know I do. And I'm curious what other people you know, it might do. And it's like, you know, on a Kindle or an iPad, you can highlight a word and look it up and, you know, be like, oh, OK, now I understand that word. Is that still reading? If it is, it still reading if I, you know, there's a really nice passage that I liked and I kind of let my mind wander for a little bit just to kind of like chew it over mentally. And I was yeah. like, is that distraction? Is that reading? Like, you know, so 
thinking about some of those things, uh, those like elements of the reading experience and thinking in terms of like, what does it mean to go from uh, print to screen and all of that? And how big of a thing are distractions? And um, I mean, at least kind of like a sneak preview I can sort of give is that uh, one of the things I've noticed is that when we talk about digital distractions, the notification, all of those things, what I've found at least like a little bit is that a lot of it seems to come like internally, like right. in terms of the distractions, it's not so much the dings and the uh, barrier things. Like when I really start to kind of like zero in on these things and mm. it's like, I think it's me actually, that's kind of yeah. like, I, I need to check this or what if I have an email and like, this is why I'm having these thoughts while reading and something. And I was like, huh, like, you know, so in a weird sort of way, like it's kind of rethinking as like, we are the distractions. Like we've been kind of um, yeah. Because of this intermittent reinforcement, this slot machine sort of like, you know, it's like, oh, let me check, let me check, let me check. Oh, there's something good, mm. something bad and all of that. So yeah. we've really internalized digital distractions in such a way that, I don't know, this is a, a tentative thing that I'm thinking about. Yeah. But it's interesting to think that we kind of, you know, uh, maybe there's a tendency to blame the phones or the social media or whatever, but mm. um, somehow they've gotten inside of us. So in, yeah. in terms of just sort of like it's this this need to check and need to kind of like, you know, always be connected and all of that. So, mm. uh, you yeah, know, there seems to be something there. Yeah, that's so. really interesting. And also your idea on what actually is a distraction, because like you said, if you're reading and then you just get lost in thought for a few minutes about something, is that actually a distraction or is that something that's actually maybe productive? Yeah. And it's kind of like the more I'm realizing it uh, is that a distraction and attention span and all these things are mm -hmm. at least partially culturally uh, dependent in mm -hmm. terms of like if we go back to like Victorian era novels and all of that. And I was like, you know, these long what we consider, you know, English class kind of texts in terms of Charles Dickens and all yeah. of that. That that was the the Twitter of the time in mm -hmm. terms of like, oh, these like, you know, cliffhanger uh, chapters and like pictures yeah. and books. And I was like, this is just taking away from the reading experience. And mm -hmm. What is happening to our minds and all of that. So um, it's all relevant and in terms of like people have been worried about attention and distractions since, you know, God knows when in terms of like uh, inventions and all of these things. Yeah. So this is sort of the latest iteration of that but what is certainly different is uh, quantity and scale and ubiquity compared to you know mm -hmm. previous times and all of that and it's like yeah now we've got uh gosh the last number i read was something crazy i think it was um 20 billion different uh, devices digital devices and it has a screen it can connect online wow. in the world compared to like human beings and all of that and i was like wow but I'm a good example. One, two, three, four. Yeah, I've got four yeah. uh, in my uh, thing right here. It's like, okay, that actually sounds about right. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. Do you think that um, the current kind of moment of everyone being forced to do much more online, much more virtually, do you think that's going to change how we do things going forward? I think it will. I mean, nobody knows, like nobody has the real crystal ball in terms mm. of like what it's going to look like. But um, I mean, the fun part is probably maybe less meetings, in-person meetings where yeah. it's like, oh, did that, re did that really need to be a thing? <laughs> yeah. um, one thing that I worry about at the university level mm -hmm. and like like a lot of us are talking about this sort of things is serendipity. Yeah. In terms of like when everything is scheduled online and it's sort of like, you know, it's like, all right, well, the invitees are all here and that. how do we get that back? Like the kind yeah. of the magic of a Cambridge or a higher ed is like, you know, there's this, you know, person in education and this book person talking to someone in like environmental science who meets this physicist and, mm. you know, all of this. And like that's where kind of the neat stuff tends to 
happen, like, you know, both here and elsewhere. And I was like, how do we, what would happen if we lost some of those like serendipitous crossovers and like kind of chance encounters and stuff? That's what I've been thinking about right now. I don't have a good answer for it necessarily, but I wonder about that. I'm trying to think about ways to, you know, it's like, how do we, how do we move some of those things more online and increase mm. those sort of like chance encounters? Like, you know, there's, there's, you know, Twitter does that in some ways, um, like a little bit here and there, but it's just not the same. How like they have that quality of engagement that wouldn't normally happen. Yeah. Um, I don't know, but I wonder about that. So that would be kind of like my, um, if, if I were writing an article on mm. this, it's sort of like screens and the loss of serendipity or something uh, like that. Like, yeah. you know, what, what do we do with that? Yeah, so. that's a really interesting point because, yeah, as you said, when everything's online, it has to be scheduled. Everything is deliberate, um, which I guess in some ways levels the playing field because it's not like, oh, I just walked down a corridor and bumped into this person and True. This thing happened, yeah. but yeah, and it's just sort of like thinking too in terms of you know like uh, because that line between work and life mm. uh, has gotten so uh, fuzzy nowadays. Uh, the digital well-being part, just to come back to that, like mm. does feel like it's going to be really important because it's tough on all of us. We all know it is mm. um, in terms of just sort of like whether we feel that pressure or not. But I've talked to other researchers, and it's like, well, I have all this free time. I'm not commuting. I'm not doing all these other things. I should be more productive. I should be doing, you know, yeah. this and that. But I was like, I, I, I wonder if we need to give ourselves a break a little bit too, in terms of like this is way different than almost any of us have you know, encountered in the past. And like, there's going to be a learning curve for some of us that, you know, when Virginia Woolf talked about having a room of one's own with a lock on the door and all mm. of that, not all of us have that uh, benefit to like, you know, like be able to close one's door, like literally or figuratively yeah. for these sort of things. So it's like, that's tough too. And that's exhausting when, you know, sometimes there is no line between work and play and life and leisure and all of that. Um, mm. Uh, we got a lot of thinking to do, and I think we'll, we'll we'll figure it out. Like you know, we're adaptable uh, yeah. at the end of the day. So like, this is a hopeful thing. There's going to be some trial and error, but uh, figuring out like what it means to like do so many things on screens. Yeah, absolutely. And do you think that because so much of your your career and your research has been looking at digital distraction and online online content, do you think that's prepared you in a way for what we're going through at the moment? That's a hard question. I, I feel like, um, uh, you know, like it's a theory and practice thing, right? Yeah. It sort of like goes with the uh, the doctors that smoke or, uh, you know, don't do their jogging, whatever, but they'll tell people to, you know, do all these things. And yeah. I was like, it is a struggle. Like, you know, I certainly have, uh, I guess, if anything, like just being more aware of sort of like, oh, I'll give an example of like the mechanisms and stuff. So like for me, one of the big ones in social media is a user interface element called infinite scroll. Mm-hmm. So infinite scroll is the idea of like if you've ever used Twitter or Instagram or TikTok or Reddit or whatever, it's exactly what it sounds like. You just scroll, scroll, scroll. Um, and there is essentially no end for that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's so addicting and it kind of just sort of hijacks our brains at some point. Yeah. And more often than not, I'm willing to guess that it makes us feel worse after a certain point. Yeah. Um, so that is, you know, like that is a good example of like, wait, something that feels like it's deliberately addicting mm. um, those sort of things I'm kind of like uh, like I'm trying to be aware of this I'm not saying don't do it all the time but um, I am saying is like there, there to me there really feels like something to it the Google guy who sort of invented uh, infinite scroll like has even come out and said like oh 
like I, I, you know, never expected this, but he's, you know, basically has said like, oh, I'm so sorry for this Pandora's box of, you know, things. Um, So those sort of elements, just Mm -hmm. like a little bit of knowledge. And that's why I like talking to people about some of these digital well-being and productivity things. And I was like, you know, maybe just that little bit to know, like, it's not really your fault. You know, it's not a question of like willpower, bad attention span, but just knowing that these things are engineered Mm. that way by like tons of computer scientists and like psychologists and all this to be like, how do we get you to click on that one more link? Mm. And just sort of being aware that that's what's going on. Mm -hmm. Sometimes that helps. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And you mentioned that you're you're moving on to a role at Think Lab at the university. So what's involved with that? Yeah, that's the we're in the process of kind of like re-envisioning, you know, what all of this could be. But, um, you know, we want it to be sort of like research impact at scale. So mm-hmm. whether it's just sort of connecting uh, different uh, researchers or people that have expertise all over the university and kind of like, hey, you might be really good for this project. Are you interested in, you know, these sort of things? And uh, it is like, you know, I think of it as life and work outside of the bubble mm-hmm. again, so that we want to do a lot of things. Like there's a lot of great efforts in the university to kind of, uh, you know, link up all of these things and how to centralize our efforts. Um, so I feel like Think Lab is going to be an outgrowth of some of these things. So um, yeah, like connecting the dots. We have very, very like, yeah. you know, connecting the dots and kind of like a matchmaker sort of function between researchers and problems that need researchers and mm-hmm. uh, ideas and these sort of things. So uh, I'm excited. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I'm trying to see like, you know, what exactly we're going to accomplish uh, with all of this. And speaking of being on screen, in some ways, it, it works well because mm. I can have these meetings, uh, jump into meetings very quickly and, you know, in the California time or something like that with yeah. people that, you know, normally would be hard to meet up with. So mm. uh, there are pluses and minuses. I think it's going to be a lot of work, but um, I do think we're going to have exciting news to share in the months to come. Oh, cool. And so do you have any examples at the moment of the kinds of problems that you're trying to connect researchers to? Yeah, let's see. So, um, I mean, I guess a good example might be the uh, the Cambridge Zero initiatives and okay, the yeah. reducing carbon thing. But like, how do we, um, you know, like in an interdisciplinary way too, find some of those people and researchers who just have that uh, background? That's the thing. Like, wouldn't it be great if Cambridge had some sort of directory to be like, you know, it's like, oh, this person like has worked on this and looking in the unexpected places too for people who might be able to contribute towards, you know, this project or um, like, you know, online education um, in a broad sense is something that a lot of us are going to be thinking about, too, yeah. in terms of like, all right, the majority of things are going to be happening on screens. What does that mean? And what can we do? You know, what can learning mean beyond just like Skype and Zoom and, you know, Teams calls and all of that? So how do we replicate some of that in-person experience? So those are the kind of questions we're like, uh, at least starting to formulate and think like, you know, like, you know, we want kind of like different voices on this, too, to be like people who had experience of this and people who come from a totally different background that might you know just see something that no one else can see Mm. and you mentioned trying to think about learning on screen in a sort of deeper way than just having a sort of online class whatever are there things that you feel like you've learned from the stanford experience that are relevant here i think yes and i think knowing that uh i'll give kind of a broad answer in the sense that because it's all happening online like thinking of like the whole student is more important now than ever before so Mm -hmm. we can't just be like all right you're here for x number of hours and then you're doing your your subjects and your homework and you know whatever like the tricky part is like 
how do we get those other things that would normally happen in the school setting, the extracurriculars and the social interaction and, um, you know, a lot of learning, like, you know, informal learning happens through peers and yeah. all of those things. So being able to replicate that in some ways, whether it's through um, activities, um, like, you know, things that are like, you know, actually fun, like, you know, like, you know, that extend kind of the knowledge and the, the sort of sort of Montessori inspired, um, yeah. uh, say, like, yeah, let people follow their passions a little bit and see what comes out of that. Um, I mean, I feel like that's one. And that applies not just to I'm not talking about just teenagers or undergrads, like kind of all of us that are in the yeah. learning experience too is that like if, if if you know when i'm talking about like life and work on screen like there's a lot that that entails too and that's the stuff in between the kind of like you know the 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 cultural and social learning that we get from each other mm. and all of that so that is um one thing uh when i talk about serendipity and kind of some of those um uh, unexpected encounters like yeah we, we kind of need to build some of that back into our lives somehow i don't know what the answer is right now but like you know like large gatherings even though that's not a thing that's possible physically can mm. still happen in an online space and um maybe that's what we end up doing maybe kind of hosting more of these um like you know larger events that bring in a lot of people and then have ways for people to be like hey you're working on this i'm working on this too so yeah um not sure what that's going to look like yet but we're trying to build some of that back in if we can That's it from us at We Are The University. If you like what you're hearing, don't forget to head over to the iTunes store, Spotify or Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts, and give us a five-star rating. I'm Jenny Hayward, and I'll see you next time.